Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Today we come to a kind of climax in this long series of messages on uh, Christ's Sermon on the Mount. Even though there are still two more chapters to the sermon that Christ gives us, what he says in these last six verses, verses 43 to 48 of, of uh, Matthew 5, is at least a fitting conclusion to chapter 5, and I think a decisive point for the whole sermon. I say this because Jesus is saying here that we should love all the way, not just part of the way. That is, we should be complete in love. Now, we know from later on in Matthew, Jesus summarizes the whole law and the prophets with his great twofold commandment of love, that we should love God supremely and that we should love our neighbors equally with ourselves. It's the vertical, worshipful love of God and the horizontal, equal love of human beings. And that is the, uh, the main point of Christ's ethical teaching. But what caught my attention as I read ch- through chapter 5 of Matthew was that Jesus never mentions the word love till verse 43. And yet, I don't think it's difficult for us to realize that virtually everything he says in the first 42 verses implies love. Now, why do I say that? Well, let's review a bit. We go back to the Beatitudes. Christ says, blessed are the meek. Have you, have you ever met a truly meek person who wasn't also a loving person? He, uh, he says, um, hunger and thirst after righteousness. But what is it to pursue righteousness if it is not to seek to grow in love? He says, blessed are the peacemakers. But, but how can you work for peace with others unless you have some measure of love and concern for those others? He speaks about his disciples being salt and light. But can they really be that without love? He warns against being angry, but angry, at least in the negative sense of the wrong kind of anger, leads to hate, which is the opposite of love. He, uh, he, he preaches against lust and adultery and divorce, all of which show a breakdown in proper love. He talks about turning the cheek, about giving away your coat, about walking the extra mile. But what are these actions unless they're done in love? So it seems to me that Jesus is subtly leading the disciples step by step towards the primary principle here by way of many illustrations of what we should do and not do if we're really going to love all the way. So when he finally gets to verse 43, and when we get to the word love, we are hope, the disciples hopefully are ready to understand what love really entails. It even means to love your enemies. 
and to pray for them. I think maybe they're trying to get my outline up on there, but uh, we can go along without it. So if I unpack these six verses, I have three things I want to point out. Three points. I remember a long time ago in a seminary class, over a half a century ago, um, we were wrestling with the problem of how to make a good sermon outline. And one cocky clown of a student said, oh, that's easy. Three points and a poem. That's all you need. Three points and a poem. Well, I don't have any poetic ability, so I'll dispense with the poem part, but I do have three points. And the first point is the Jews often misunderstood God's universal plan. Do you have that? No, good, okay. <laughs> the Jews often misunderstood God's universal plan. I take this as so, as I consider the historical and cultural context of this saying that Jesus refers to in verse 43, the saying of love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, where did that saying come from? Well, love your neighbor as yourself, of course, is from the Old Testament. Leviticus 19, verse 18 says that. But the Old Testament does not command us to hate our enemies. However, according to Expositor Bible Commentary, there is evidence from the Qumran community, from which we get our Dead Sea Scrolls, that they were told to love those of the community but hate the outsiders. And it's probable that many of the Jews uh, in Jesus' day had this kind of attitude. And such attitude is certainly common with us today, isn't it? But what I'm suggesting here in my first point is that I think it was rather easy for the Israelites to develop a negative attitude toward the Gentile nations around them. Uh, an attitude that led to hatred. Because, after all, they felt privileged. They felt uh, superior to the other nations because God had chosen them as a special and holy people unto himself to be separated from the immorality and the idolatry of the, of the heathen nations. After all, they, um, they had the Ten Commandments and they had the laws of clean and unclean and, and uh, they... They were children of God's covenant through circumcision and so forth. And I'm thinking it must have been easy for the Israelites to despise those dirty, immoral, uncircumcised Gentiles. But it was God's purpose that Israel would be a witness to those nations. And that as actually God would eventually redeem all those nations and bring peace and righteousness to the whole world. So it seems to me that the Israelites of the Old Testament and also the Jews of Christ's day forgot or at least misunderstood God's universal purpose. So they were okay with loving their Jewish neighbors, and they no doubt probably remembered that Leviticus 19 also taught that you are to love the foreigner that dwells among you. But those foreigners that are further away from you, the tax collectors, the Roman soldiers, the Samaritans, people like that, that was another matter, right? 
So how does that apply to us today? How are we with uh, those people who disagree with us political, politically? Or, or maybe it's that cantankerous next-door neighbor of yours that's the hardest one to love. Or maybe someone in your family, in your own household. Have we forgotten God's universal plan and purpose? The universal plan that I'm referring to was not a whole lot elaborated in the Old Testament, but it was there throughout the scriptures. And the Israelites of the Old Testament and their Jewish descendants in Jesus' day should have kept it in mind. It was there with Abraham when God revealed himself to Abraham and told Abraham that in his descendants, all the families of the earth would be blessed. That is the Gentiles also. Ooh, we got something up here. <laughs> okay. Point one. <laughs> so where am I? Okay. Um, God promised that Abraham's descendants would bless all the nations. And it seems that this worldwide blessing would come <coughs> about through the Davidic kingdom. And especially through the Messiah, as the Old Testament prophets progressively described him. His kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom, according to 1 Samuel 7:16. It would be an ever-expanding kingdom of peace and righteousness, Isaiah 9, verse 7. A kingdom in which the, leading, the leaders of the nations would assemble as the people of the God of Abraham, according to Psalm 47, 9. A kingdom in which the nations of the world would beat their swords into plowshares and learn, not learn war anymore, but they would come to Israel's God and be taught his ways, according to Isaiah 2. <clears throat> God's universal plan is eloquently dis, uh, stated in Isaiah 45, verse 22, where God says, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Nevertheless, the Jews of Jesus' day seem not to keep this universal plan of God in mind. So the saying of Jesus, that Jesus refers to, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, was no doubt rather common in Jesus' day. But then Jesus comes along with a radical idea. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's pretty radical, right? But he says it. And he gives a reason for it. He says in verse 45, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. If you really want to be children of God, the Heavenly Father, learn to love your enemies. And then he goes on to explain that God loves even his enemies. And as his children, we should do the same. And this leads me to the second point. Jesus appeals to general revelation to support God's universal love. Now, where in the world did I get that idea? Well, let's read the rest of verse 45. Jesus says, about loving your enemies, he says that you may be children of your 
Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on evil and good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, I don't think this is a quote from the Old Testament. Although Paul says something similar to it in Acts 14, 17. Paul says uh, to the pagan Gentiles, he says, God has a witness in nature, in creation. He says, and I quote, God has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Now, these two statements, the one by Jesus and the one by Paul, are references to what the theologians call general revelation. That is, God's revelation in creation in its natural processes and its ordinary existence. And this is distinguished from special revelation, which is God's way of revealing himself in special or supernatural ways. For example, through miracles, or through the prophets, or through the Bible itself, and, of course, supremely in Christ. Now, of course, Christ doesn't quote Paul, because Paul comes afterward. Perhaps the closest statement in the Old Testament to what Jesus was referring to is in Zechariah 10.1. In that passage, a prophet says of God, he gives showers of rain to all people and plants of the field to everyone. But even in this passage, we could say that there is an appeal to the general revelation, for nothing is said that isn't observable by mankind's ordinary experience. So as I see it then, what Jesus is saying here in verse 45 is an appeal to general revelation, which gives us knowledge that we can gain through our ordinary means, the ordinary means that God himself has established through nature and through our observation and our reasoning. Jesus doesn't do this only occasionally. Think about it. The whole parable ministry of Jesus is dependent upon it. In his parables, he draws from his common experience, his common knowledge about farming, about horticulture, about building construction, and so forth. You see, Jesus wants us to use our minds to understand both God's world and God's word. On one occasion, Jesus compliments the crowd for being able to understand God's world, but failing to understand God's word. I'm referring to Luke 17, verses 54 to 56. He says, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it you do not understand how to interpret this present time? I think what he means is that they did not grasp the scriptures that prophesied about Messiah and how Jesus was was fulfilling them. So they understood God's world when it came to interpreting the weather. But they did not understand God's word, the special revelation of scripture, when it came to recognizing the Messiah. 
So back here in Matthew 5, when Jesus wanted to illustrate God's universal love for all humankind, he appeals to general revelation. His reference to God sending sunshine and rain on both the uh, good and the evil uh, is meant to show that God's love reaches everyone. So if the disciples are going to be like their heavenly father, they should... Love everyone. You see, Jesus knew how to get down to his disciples' level of understanding to teach them by means of the truths of nature. I don't mean to belabor this point, but I think it's important to realize that not only is all truth God's truth, but all our knowledge of the truth comes from revelation, either general revelation or special revelation. Let's be knowledgeable of both. And then my third point, Jesus wants us to be complete in love. In verse 48, Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the Greek word that is translated perfect in this verse is teleos. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, as our pastor is, But uh, I did look up the word in my art and Gingrich lexicon. And the other words that it had to translate, tilios, besides perfect, were complete, full-grown, fully developed, and mature. Now, I don't think Jesus was talking about sinless perfection in this context. Although I'm sure that his, that is his goal for all of us in the ultimate future. But in view of the context, I think Jesus is saying, be complete in love. Strive for it in order to be children of your heavenly father. He's talking about becoming mature in love. As I've said, to love all the way. Not just with friends, but also enemies. And this becomes clear when we consider verses uh, 46 and 47. Here Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? I can't help wondering that whether Jesus chose tax collectors and pagans as examples of the kinds of people that the Jews tended to hate. If so, Jesus is saying, hey, get used to it. These are the kind of people I want you to love. Now, it is sometimes said, you don't have to like your enemies, but you have to love them. In this regard, I find a statement from Lenski's commentary on Matthew helpful. In referring to loving your enemies, Lenski says, the higher love may see nothing attractive in the one loved, nor is this love called out by anything that is attractive. Its inner motive is simply to bestow true blessings upon the, the one loved, to do him the highest good. I cannot like a filthy, vicious beggar and make him my personal friend. I cannot like a low, mean criminal who may have robbed me and threatened my life. (laughs) 
I cannot like a false, lying, slanderous fellow who perhaps has vilified me again and again, but I can, by the grace of Jesus Christ, love them all, see what is wrong with them, desire and work to do them only good, most of all to free them from their vicious ways, end of quote. So Jesus is teaching us that we need to grow in love to completion. Don't just love in part. Like the people, it's easy to love. (laughs) But learn to love all the way, even the people you might tend to hate. Now, who are the kinds of people we need to get used to loving? (laughs) I'm not very comfortable with the question because... I don't want to think about the discomfort of trying to love those people with whom I'm uncomfortable. (laughs) But I think I need to ask the question, and I think you need to also. In a recent issue of Christianity Today, I read an article by Judy Wu Dominic entitled, Love Your Frenemies, F-R-E-N-E-M-I-E-S. And one of the things she said caught my attention was as follows, and I quote, My family attended the church like normal that Sunday following the presidential election, but the service felt anything but. Beloved church members who had voted for Donald Trump were worshiping God in the same room as other beloved church members threatened by Trump's victory including dreamers and American citizens, children of undocumented immigrants. Within those walls, happiness and relief mingled with dread and grief. Despite the cordiality and even affection between these groups, it was apparent that the vastly different political interests and allegiances represented in that room pitted people against one another. My pastor acknowledged the situation that Sunday with these words. The church is a community of enemies learning to love each other. Now, I'm not sure whether it would be right to say that our church is a community of enemies, at least not mortal enemies. I think CBC has done a fairly decent job of not letting our political differences hinder our fellowship or our worship or our work involved in our various ministries. Yes, we have lost a few families because of of the political issue, although we might have lost even more because we voted to allow women to speak in the 930 service. I'm not sure about that. But we have not allowed politics to split the church. And yet I wonder how far we have gone in applying this commandment of Jesus in, our, in today's text when it comes to those in our fellowship who disagree with us politically. Do we pray for each other? Do we try to listen to each other and to understand each other even if the differences continue? Is it even possible for a church, a community of Christians who worship Christ to talk out all these differences in this very touchy matter and still be a fellowship of love. 
I'm not sure I know the answer to that question. Maybe, maybe we have to answer it together. Well, earlier I told you that I had no poem, and that is true. But Barbara did one for me. She, uh, she said it's a limerick, and she had to remind me what a limerick is. <clears throat> and here it is. I really don't like Brother Brian. He told some tall tales he was a lion. I did what I should and fixed him for good. Now he's as unhappy as I am. <laughs> if you're not sure how to interpret that, I'm not, I don't know that I can either, but, but uh, if you come to the discussion afterwards in the lounge, why we might talk about it, along with other more relevant questions, maybe. At any rate, in this last section of Matthew 5, Jesus presents what I'm sure the disciples saw as a very tall order, but they stuck around with him for three years to learn by observing him and practicing what he did and how he behaved. He loved his enemies and prayed for them. The supreme example of that, of course, is when he prayed to the Father about his enemies who were at that very moment crucifying him. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So I finish with the key biblical truth. Jesus wants us to love all the way by following him and practicing his life and work.